probably best you missed that joke. Anyway, uh, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 12, verse 24, we are studying the Olivet Discourse, and this is a, a beautiful picture of the lead-up to uh, what he's getting ready to tell us. In Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, the Lord took four disciples up the Mount of Olives, and he gave them his most extended prophetic message that we find anywhere uh, of him in the Scripture. And Jesus being the prophet, you would expect to find some prophecies that are given by him. We are leading up to it. We are in the week of the cross chronologically. We have seen uh, last week we saw the poor widow that came and put in everything she had. And the Pharisees were just <clears throat> patting themselves on the back because they, uh, you know, sounded the trumpet whenever they gave alms. They threw it into the money basket so it could be heard how much they gave. And uh, they were just basically giving to show off. And yet this woman gave all that she had, maybe because the Pharisees had devoured her house, because that's also been part of this conversation the Lord is giving the week of the cross. Now he is teaching, and there are some Greeks in verse 20 that want to come and see Jesus. Now that's where we're going to pick up with this week. Uh, we'll, hopefully, if I get through this, we'll get into the body of the Olivet Discourse itself after he takes the disciples up the mountain. Starts in Luke 21, 5. First four verses of that is the, the poor widow that came. And so now this is going on the week of the, the cross once again. And so we're, we're trying to get this all chronologically put together because that establishes the context for the Olivet Discourse. And we'll find out as we go through it, part of it is directed at the immediate disciples that he has right there in front of him. Another part of it has a focus more on the church age itself, and another one has, has a focus on um, uh, the Jews. Luke 21 is about the Jews, the surrounding of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem in accordance with a previous prophecy that he'd given. So anyway, we're going we're gonna to look at them. They're, they're parallel passages, but they have a little different context, and that's fine. The Lord can do that without any problem. There's no contradictions whatsoever. We're going to see how it all fits together. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment once again for prayer and get ourselves ready to study the word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we are just amazed at your word. We are amazed that it was put together by over 40 authors scattered over five continents. Father, that uh, they came together with a, a common thread of redemption that you wanted to portray to mankind. Father, we know that they, that they uh, had uh, written from different time frames, scattered over 1,500 years. And yet, Father, you put all this together in such a way that we can open up your book today, 2,000 years after it was completed, and it's just as relevant today as the day in which it was written. Father, the history gives us a basis to look back at things and see your faithfulness. And Father, it also prepares us for the future because what you say is going to happen, we believe is going to happen. 
So, Father, we pray you'd enlighten and challenge us today, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in John 12, 20, we'll read there, there were Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These kin came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They wanted an audience with Jesus. And Philip came, and he told Andrew. It's interesting, as you see uh, Philip, Philip's the bean counter of the 12 disciples. It's interesting to follow them along. He's the one when uh, Jesus <clears throat> went to him, Philip, feed the 5,000. He said, Lord, we don't have enough food. It would take 300 denarii of, uh, to feed them. Even one, He knew how many people were there. He knew what it would take to feed them. He was a mathematician. Uh, we get a lot, uh, quite a picture about, about Philip. Andrew, every time you see him, he's bringing somebody to the Lord. And Philip came and he told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus, who was probably still in the temple. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of the Man to be glorified. Now, <clears throat> the Son of the Man takes us inherently to the fact he's the second Adam. The man is Ha'adam. The man takes us back to the garden. The son of the man has to do with the humanity of the Messiah. So when you put all the passages together, you find out that David called him Lord, and there was no authority higher than David at that time. The Lord said to my Lord, so David called him Lord, so he had to be God. So you find out that 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 he is God and man. A child will be born to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He shall be called Eternal Father, Mighty God. So he is God and man. The, 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 the skin is coming together on the skeleton as the Lord is uh, teaching there at the first advent. The hour has come. Now, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, this is amen, amen. Okay? Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. One grain of wheat is going to be all by itself unless it falls into the earth and dies. If it dies, though, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life. Here's the application. Choices to be made by us also found in Adam, but not the son of the man. The word loves is a present participle of phileo. This is the one loving, okay? It's an ongoing activity. The one loving, his life is the word suke, which is the word for soul. The soul is the immaterial part of man. But there's, there's not life without a soul. And a lot of times they've decided, the translators of old have decided to translate suke as life. And I believe it should actually be translated as soul when we run into it. Because the focus is on the immaterial part of man. He says, he who loves his soul, i.e. phileo is a love that is a, lo a friendship love. Agape is a love that does the right thing. Phileo is a word that looks at warmth and friendship. So it's saying, whenever you love your own soul with such a warmth and a closeness that it excludes everything else. See, that's self-centeredness. He says, he who loves his own soul, 
loses it. Apolumi is the word that is used here. And when you track this word out, it's a word that means ruins. Ruins it. If all you do is love yourself, you're ruining your soul. That's what he, what he is saying. And he who hates his soul, again, life here is suke, it's the word for soul. Hates is the word maseo, and it's the word that means to have no regard for. Okay, in other words, it's not all about you. Say so the word hate means to have no regard for as it regards you above all else. He who is hating his soul in this world will keep it to life eternal. Keep is the word fulasso. And fulasso is a word that means to guard or to protect. So th this is basically giving us soul protection. This is a verse about protection of our soul. And it says in verse 26, If anyone serves me, here is a subjunctive, present active subjunctive, diakoneo. This particular word group emphasizes action, the actions of service. We get diakonos from it. Deacon emphasizes the acts of service. A doulos is translated as a bondservant. It, it, that's the way it's normally is translated. That's more about the attitude. It's a one that says, I'm serving because of the greatness of the master I serve. That's a bond servant. Okay, where diakonos is more about the acts of service themselves. So he says, if anyone is serving me, he must follow. And here's an imperative of akolotheo, used 90 times. Present active imperative. And it's a word that when you track it down basically means to follow as a disciple. It's one who is closely adhered to, and it's not the mathetuo word, which we get mathetes and get disciple from normally. What it, what it uh, refers to here is really just to follow along as a disciple. It's another word used similar to, to mathetuo. He must follow me. Now, if you're serving me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. It's kind of interesting. Henry Blackaby wrote a book a long time ago called Experiencing God. I think we went through it back in the 90s. It was just a great book. And uh, Blackaby said, so many people pray, uh, Lord, show me where you want me to go. Show me where you want me to go. And he said, that may be the wrong prayer. He said, find out where God is at work and join him. That makes a lot of sense. Where is he at work and how can I join? That makes a whole lot of sense. Spiritual common sense. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Isn't, that, isn't this teaching the same thing? Okay, you're going to follow me, follow me. But where am I working? Where I'm working, join me. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And this is a future tense of temeo. Now, this future tense is used as a promise. Okay? You follow the Lord, the Father will honor you. That's the promise. That's, that's the bottom line. The Father will honor him. Now, what points are we being taught in these three verses? Death must precede fruit. From John chapter 12, verse 23 to 26, our verses... Galatians 2.20 is another verse. Two witnesses saying the same thing. I've been crucified with Christ. 
and it's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of the God who loved me and he delivered himself up for me Paul Paul died to self that's what he's saying dying to self that's what the Lord is calling us to do is die to self okay and live for Christ because if we're living for old number one it's it's a problem it's sad because that even falls to a lot of ministers and pastors that have fallen prey to the wiles of the devil over the course of of time and of, of the years because they start serving themselves I hear people at times say this is my ministry my ministry it's my ministry because the Lord has let me join with him if it becomes my ministry to the point of I'll protect it at all costs, that's a mistake. It's the ministry is the Lord's ministry that he has invited us to join in. We can't lose sight of that fact. Jesus proclaims three promises in conjunction with producing fruit. First, if a person does not die to self, that soul gets ruined. Now, is, isn't that a promise you like to claim and put on your refrigerator? People don't realize, that we, we always look for promises, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Great promise, beautiful promise, that the Lord will be with us even to the end of the age. It's a, it's a great promise that, that is there. Okay, <clears throat> but we, how about the negative promises? The promise things that it's the same construction, same, same uh, Greek, same Hebrew, you run into them, but what about if you do this, then this will, is going to happen. That's a promise too. Uh, if a person doesn't die to self, that soul gets ruined. Why? Because they're living this life for themselves and not for the Lord. If a person does die to self, that soul is protected. It's interesting about soul because your body may not be protected things that are going on around the world and probably coming to a city near you the things that are going on right now if you are if you are living a life for the lord you come under you're a target you have a target painted on your back it is it is happening we had an opportunity to distribute some bibles in um, uh, asia that's as close as i'm going to get to a location but they passed a law that basically says that, that you could not hand out Bibles to anybody because that is a proselyting. You're inviting them to become a part of who you are. And if you do that, you're proselyting them by giving them a gift, and that's illegal, and you'll go to jail. Now, uh, see, your body might not be... What happens if you pass out Bibles? You may be subject to the laws of the land. That's what may, what may happen. But are we more interested in the Father's will or our will? And that's what this is about. Are we more interested in, as the Lord said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. If you do die to yourself, the soul is protected. As far as getting out of fellowship, losing your relationship, it's still protected. But it doesn't mean your body is going to be delivered from persecution necessarily. If a person serves Jesus as a disciple, honor will come from the Father. Three promises that are there. Your soul is protected. It becomes more and more protected the more and more that you do it. No fruit occurs without attachment to a life support system. 
And you can't hardly do this without going to John 15, where the Lord is going to take this uh, passage for the Greeks. And this is John 12, right? John 15 is in the upper room the night before the cross, and he is giving them their final marching orders. He is giving them information that will encourage them. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me. See, he's, he's teaching them, and he's talking to them about fruit. He says in John 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I am the, the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now see, that's a pretty clear statement of the importance of the relationship and the interaction. Fruit production involves transformation. From Romans chapter 12. Some people do good things to be seen by men. Sounds like a Pharisee, doesn't it? Didn't they give alms in order to be seen by men? Didn't they wear long robes to be seen by men? Didn't they offer long prayers in the marketplace to be seen by men? The Lord said, truly, they have their reward in full. We're not looking for the stuff for here. We're looking for the stuff for eternity. Because that is not ever going to lose its, its luster. Romans 12 is about presenting your body a living, holy sacrifice. It's about dying to self, is it not? And being transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can determine what his will is. Maximum production of fruit requires that pruning be done from time to time. John 15, verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it might bear more fruit. Okay. Uh, we, have tree, we have rose bushes. We can cut those things back to nothing. And guess what? They just love it. This stupid holly bush I've got at the southeast corner of my house. I do not like holly bushes since I was a painter. I painted in holly bushes where they plant them, people plant them as security measures because nobody's going to climb over a holly bush to break in your window unless they're nuts. Holly bushes are, I don't like at all. I have cut this thing, I have dug this thing, I've been given half a dozen different ways to get rid of this thing forevermore. I have cut it down to a foot below the ground I pulled out everything I thought was a root multiple times and here it is again it's back pruning see is not necessarily a bad thing <laughs> it's not a bad thing and in a Christian who's producing a fruit pruning to a Christian sometimes is saying you need to focus your ministry not here anymore but here why? Because this part of the fruit production is about to go away, but maybe you need to move to here. See, pruning is part of God's way of teaching us and directing us. Bearing a lot of fruit glorifies the Father and is proof of being a disciple of the Lord. From John 15, 8. This, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Proved to be my disciples. We are appointed by the Lord to bear fruit. 
John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you, you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. You know, it's, it's so... The, the, he's talking there to... He's, Judas isn't there, the other 11 are there. Okay, this is the upper room discourse the night before the cross and he says you go and bear much fruit and your fruit will remain. I've seen the fruit of that in South India. Thomas went into India. He was the disciple that went into India, landed on the west coast, worked his way all the way to the east coast where he was then killed by a Hindu priest with a spear. Now, <clears throat> that's pretty well established uh, tradition that, that we know about. But you know, the church of St. Thomas is still there. Yeah. Fruit that has lasted 2,000 years. It's not that they've got everything right by a long shot but what it is saying is the Lord's truth is truth and he said I want you to go because your fruit will remain he took 11 added Paul to it and changed the world so this is part of what he does he's not limited by numbers some people think that they've got got the Lord outnumbered no he's actually got them right where he wants them <laughs> he's got them right where he wants them this fruit is produced by the Holy Spirit. It comes from the inside out through Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. In Galatians 5.22, we're all taught that as kids. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. We know those. Yeah, the fruit's produced by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit abides in you. When we get out of the way and die to self, what does the Holy Spirit do? He produces fruit. What is the fruit? Love. You learn to love the unlovable. If you find yourself loving people that 10 years ago you wouldn't have loved, you're making progress. I look back at my ministry and I go, but golly, I've been doing this for a long time. Forty years ago, I would not have associated with the me of today. Why? Because I'm different. I feel like I've grown. But the me of today would have associated with the me of 40 years ago. What was lacking? The love was lacking. The grace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness. It wasn't where it should be. See, I would have separated over a doctrinal issue instead of trying to minister to the me of 40 years ago. It would have been a mistake uh, to, to do otherwise. But here is this fruit that is produced. Now, verse 27, it's the Lord talking again. Now my soul has become troubled. Now, this is a word, terasso. It means to stir up. It is a perfect tense. You don't run into perfects that often. Normally, you would expect here an aorist tense. Aorist tense is the point of time. This is a perfect tense. Completed action results that go on. The passive says from an outside source. The indicative says that it's a historical fact. My soul. See, interestingly, there's suke. <laughs> Again, translated as soul, they translated it as life a couple of verses back. 
Okay? Consistency says my soul has become stirred up, troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He knows what's happening. He is getting ready to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows exactly what is getting ready to happen. His disciples, he's gave them bits and pieces. They still don't get it. He's told them clearly, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. I'll be delivered in the hands of evil men. They will crucify me and they, they just won't, won't buy that. And he says, my soul has become trouble. What shall I say? Why did it become trouble? Father, save me from this hour. It was, had to be the most devastating time in the life of any human being pure humanity is Jesus Christ ever and he knew what he was getting ready to face he says but for this purpose I came to this hour the Passover is drawing nigh when he's speaking this he's only a couple of days away from the Passover now Jesus had experienced a lot of joy but he still had a troubled soul Joy from healing others. Joy from the miracles that he did. Joy from watching faces light up. Joy from seeing a response to his, to his teaching and what he had done. He would experienced a lot of joy. He had shared his joy and seen a lot of response for it. But he still had a troubled soul because he knew what was coming. Through Jesus' witness... Our souls can be troubled without losing our faith. And thus being troubled is not sinful. Now sometimes we think just because my soul is all stirred up, I'm living in sin. Depends on what it's stirred up about. It's not, it's just like, it, it's just like um, uh, hate. Hate may not be sinful. If we hate the sins that we are committing, may not be sinful. We find that oftentimes these emotions have a positive and negative element to them. There is anger. More times than not, it's unrighteous anger. But there's a righteous anger when he cleaned out the temple. What was the difference? The attitude and, and the motivation. Our souls can be troubled without losing our faith and thus being troubled is not sinful. Are you troubled by what's going on in the world? Or oblivious to it. I think we might should be troubled. I'm not going to make up a legalism on this. But what's going on in the world is we see the devil make inroad after inroad after inroad without even hardly being slowed down. It should bring trouble to our soul, I would think. John 13, 21. When Jesus had said this, now see here we are in John 12, he says, my soul has become troubled, but should I say, Father, deliver me from this hour? 13, when Jesus had heard this, he became troubled in spirit. John 13, let's see what's happening in John 13. He's just getting ready to wash their feet. And he testified and he said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. See, he loved even Judas. It's troubling because he knows what Judas is going to do. He has known all along what he's going to do. But now the time has come. And he became troubled. He became troubled, first of all, over what was getting ready to happen and what he was going to, going to endure. But now, the son of perdition is not going to make it. And the Lord just gives us a little 
taste here of what he goes through. It does not make him happy for anyone to be cast into the lake of fire. It would be incompatible with who he is. But his justice will require it. When our faith is shaken, then the troubling is a problem. From Matthew 14, 26. <laughs> when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. <laughs> they were terrassoed. They were shaken to the core and they said, it's a ghost. Well, what had happened? Their faith was shaken by the storm. They saw him walking on the sea. Then they were shaken and, and torn up. See, there, when the faith is shaken, the troubling's a problem. And Jesus points out this kind of troubling of soul is best handled with faith. Where else do we find this crazy word, terrasso? Let not your heart be terrassoed. Let not be shaken. Believe in God. Believe also in me. When we find ourselves unduly troubled because our faith has been shaken, we put our faith right back in the Lord. It's easy to do because there's a lot of things going on in this world. But you know, nothing has escaped his notice. That's what, his, what the scripture tells us. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going on in the souls of men. He knows what they're going to think before they think it. And you know what? His plan is still going to win. And it's going to come to pass. So even in the midst of the chaos, we can find some comfort. Jesus publicly expresses both his hurting soul and his resolve. He's publicly talking, say, did he come out of the temple to talk to the Greeks or is he still in the temple talking and the Greeks are waiting outside? We just, we don't know the answer to that. But what we, what we see is, is that he is publicly expressing the fact that he is troubled and why. Now, how does he respond? The Lord calls out, his soul is troubled, okay? Father, glorify your name. Glorify is a doxazo. It is the word to, to, that means to glorify. And it's the important thing here. It's an, it's an imperative. It's an aorist imperative. The aorist asks for a one-time thing to do this. The imperative is a command, but it's a strong request. The imperative is not always used as a command because the, fa the son is in submission to the father. But it's just like going to daddy and saying, daddy, I need this done. Okay? And it's an urgency that is there. Glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. It says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, wouldn't you like to hear that voice? So I think that, Lord, can you do a replay for that when we get to heaven? <laughs> can you do a replay of that? Because I'd really like to, like to hear that. So the crowd of people who stood by, because what did Jesus say? Glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. And the voice didn't give one word, did it? Spoke in a sentence. I have glorified it and will glorify it another time, again. It says, so the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. 
boy, are we stupid or what? <laughs> of course, we look at this passing, oh, we'd have never done that. Well, <laughs> it happened with the Jews in the desert. When the Lord opens his mouth, a lot of times people don't get it. Whenever you see something that, and the, the, the Lord spoke to Abraham saying, Abraham, and Abraham goes, yes, Lord. He spoke to Isaiah, okay? Isaiah, yes, Lord. Here am I, send me. See, some of them hear. Most don't. The crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying it had thundered. And others were saying an angel has spoken to him. You know, Jesus didn't ask for an angel to speak to him, did he? He said, Father, glorify your name. And so the Father did. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. So the Greeks might not have seen Jesus yet, but they're going to hear his Father's voice. This was at the third time the Father had spoken from heaven. The first one was at his son's baptism. Back with the John the Baptizer who was there. And then next at the Transfiguration. Again with the four disciples that were there. And the Father spoke. Behold my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased. And the Father tells the multitude. Think of what Daddy just said. Father tells the multitude to look at the past. I have glorified it. I've done it in the past. He spoke two other times from heaven in the, during the public ministry of Christ. He's spoken before. He has glorified it. He has brought to pass what he said he would do. He has glorified it. And consider the future. He said, and I will glorify it again. Now, <clears throat> he, look at the past, consider the future. Why? Because the Father's been there in the past. And he'll be there in the future. Christian faith is built on history. It's the context for our faith. Do you see why the devil wants to rewrite history? Do you see why they want to change everything around? Because they don't want to give the Almighty any credit whatsoever. Because to do that is not scientific. You can't have any religion into your thought processes at all. You can't be scientific. But here, that history is a context for our faith. We look back and go, why do we follow Christ? Well, let's see. The, the Bible has been proven true. Nobody has ever disproven the Bible, although they've tried to. They use rules of evidence that wouldn't hold up in any court of law to try to do that. They take data and reinterpret it and twist it and ignore the stuff that doesn't fit their model. That's, that's pure and simple. Now that is not, not anything to, to build a faith on. History though, where, where the Bible touches on history, it's been shown accurate. You go all the way back to the Hittites, the scripture. I, I love this because it required a complete rewrite uh, part of the Cambridge ancient history. Because they said that the Bible has to be inaccurate because there, are no, there is no archaeological evidence of the Hittites. At all. So the Bible's inaccurate. Okay. And after they, they stuck their neck out. Uh, guess what they found? 
evidence there were not only Hittites, they had an empire at one time. They found the documentation on it. Let God be proved true, though every man be found a liar. Here is the here is that uh, here's that uh, illustration. History is the context for our faith. We can go on and on and on about when God speaks about history. That's what happens, and the future is the foundation of our hope. See, because faith is about the now, based on the past. Hope is faith for the future. It's what God says is going to happen. You know, he's never brought everything together for a major prophetic event and then dispersed it again. It's not the way he does things. Not saying he can't, but he's brought everything together for these events of the last days and the end times. And it, he's never dispersed them again. Israel's back in the land. Some say Israel could leave. Well, you can say that all you want, but it's never been done that way before. He is back. They are back in the land. They've been recognized by the world as a nation. People have many op opinions concerning the voice of God. But we should only listen to the voice that clearly reveals the Son. What did he do? I've glorified it. What did Jesus say? Glorify your name. Glorify your name. What did the Father do? Right then he answered him back. Now, next verse. Now is noon, N-U-N, little bitty conjunctive word, judgment. Crisis. We get crisis out of this. Isn't that interesting? Judgment is upon this world. Now, noon repeated, the archon, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. This is a future tense of ekbalo, to throw out of. A future, a future event, clearly. Okay. Now, Jesus had been accused of being in league with the ruler of demons. Look again. He's at the temple complex. Whether he's in it or not, or in the outer court, we don't know. But he's been accused of being in league with the ruler of demons. Matthew 9.33. The Pharisees were saying he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. <clears throat> he announces that it's time for judgment. But notice that it will not occur for yet a few days. So the meaning of the word now in this context concerns the proclamation that an event will occur. So the focus is on the proclamation by the use of this, wor use of this word, i.e., who is saying it, what is being said, but not the fact that the event is imminent because it's still a period of time away. Now, here's the proclamation. Why would Jesus do that? Well, see, when he gets into the upper room, he's going to tell the disciples, now I'm going to tell you everything that is going to happen so when it comes to happen, you'll know it was all part of the plan. I'm going to, he was going to prove and display to everyone that he indeed was the prophet as unto Moses that they were looking for. All the necessary circumstances are in place for this. Father, let this cup pass from me. Let this. But why should I say that? Because I came for this very hour. And God's plan is a sequence of events with certain events being the prerequisites for other events 
And Satan, the ruler of this world, will soon be approaching Jesus personally in the person of Judas. Okay, here we are in John 12, right? Sometime during the week of the cross. John 13 is in the upper room with the washing of the feet. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. That's how it opens up. 15, 22, and 23 in John 14 is if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And now in verse 29, now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you might believe. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me but so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up and let's go from here. And what they did was went out to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's leave is what he's saying. When he gets there, he's going to teach them some more. And then they're going to fall asleep while he goes to pray. Although the ruler of this world will still be in the world until the second advent... The power to overcome him through the Holy Spirit is readily available. The judgment's coming on him. He was judged in eternity past in the court of God because he's already been judged. Okay? But the execution of the judgment is not till the great white throne after the millennial kingdom. So here is, a, here is this, this ruler... And we overcome him by the Holy Spirit. Great white throne and the final destruction of Satan's in Revelation 20. John 16, 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Speaking of the other helper, the Holy Spirit. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you no longer see me. And concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world has been judged in the past. Satan's has already been convicted before the first advent. This is important and crucial to understanding the angelic conflict and why we are here. Because he was judged, found guilty back before the foundation of the world. But he's not, the sentence is not executed until the great white throne. And what's in the middle? Us. Now that tells us that we have something to do with an appeal because obviously there is an appeal of that sentence that Satan had argued with God about. And we put this together. It's in the little book back there. We put it together so that, that we can understand why are we here? Why are we here? Just because God wanted to have fun and see how stupid beings can become? Or is that something to do with the resolution of the conflict between he and Satan? And the evidence looks to the fact that it's something to do with the evidence between he and Satan. We get bits and pieces throughout all of Scripture, and we put those together. At one time, all of us were once this world ruler's children. That's scary to think about. We know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace we've been saved through faith. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. 
of the Spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. At one time we were all part of this, this world ruler's children. But the Lord came to set free the captives, didn't he? That's what he did. He changed clothes, put on the clothes of a carpenter's son, and he came down here to redeem us. Now verse 32 is about the spiritual victory. And uh, I, this will be a good place to stop because i like to spend some time with this because this is an important set of verses theologically that we're going to come up to. But it's about the angelic victory. The ruler's already been judged. But this is part of what has to happen in the courtroom of God of the ages. And Jesus talks about that. Judgment is upon this world. Huh. It's going to be a judgment for good. He's going to bear the sins of the world in his body on a tree is what he's going to do. And then he's going to rise again from the dead. And he's going to walk out of a grave and appear to over 500 people just to let them know that, yes, he kept his word. Uh, but the judgment on Satan that had already been issued, now it's been, been proven and condemned. It has to do something with the fact that the Lord could take care of the sins of humanity could take care of them without compromising his essence because here it is God became flesh lived a perfect life and then took our place on a cross as a worthy sacrifice the amazing intertwinement of, of the principles let's pray thank you father again for all your grace your goodness your love your blessings your test thank you for your word and Father, thank you for just for giving us the opportunity to be able to fellowship together around your word and learn from it. Father, I pray that indeed these principles would be important to us, that we would once again see what the Lord went through for us. And Father, that we'd be able to live a life that is pleasing to you. So Father, we do ask that you would glorify your name once again as you have promised, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.